Hello, everybody, and welcome back to High School Not So Much a Musical. Today, we are joined with Jared Arkari, who is an expert in the private investment funds market at Paul Hastings. Paul Hastings is the premier international law firm that provides innovative legal solutions to many of the world's top financial institutions and Fortune 500 companies. Throughout this episode, we speak with Mr. Arkari about the importance of financial literacy in high school, what exactly private investment is, the convergence of finance and law, as well as how entrepreneurs can secure strong seed funding for their ideas. To hear more about that and the basics of the stock market, stay tuned. We hope you enjoy. We'll get to that right after this. This is High School Not So Much a Musical, a podcast that takes you on a ride to the peaks and valleys of a high school journey. Here are your presenters, Nitin Jaladanti and Ayush Agarwal. Okay, so Mr. Arkari, could you please um, talk about your experiences over the years working with entrepreneurs and investors to connect the two, such as your work at the Paul Hastings Law Firm? Sure, um, absolutely. So um, before I came to Paul Hastings, I was at a firm called Goodwin Proctor, uh, which actually specializes in the tech and life sciences area. And so during my time at Goodwin, I actually worked directly with entrepreneurs, um, including, you know, the CEOs, CFOs, and chief legal officers of tech startups. Um, And we'd help them through, you know, their everyday problems, anything from employment issues to um, their current fundraising. Um, And what I actually did most during that um, stint in my career for about two years was um financing where we would um basically help these startups um collect money from the private equity um industry um and we'd help them uh form the fundraising round and um find investors and then bring those investors in as investors to their companies um i had a pretty wide range of clients um back then as well i had everything from a clothing brand to um, some pretty exciting health startups. Um, and what actually became interesting during the pandemic was that one of our health startups that I worked with um, <clears throat> ended up doing really, really well because um, they basically aggregate data um, across hospital systems and help hospitals spot um, trends. And of course, during the pandemic, that's what um, every health professional is looking forward looking for. Um, and so they did very well. We helped them raise a couple rounds of financing one after another. And it was very interesting to see, you know, the the application of what I do from a legal basis, applying in a real world situation where this company was growing very, very fast because of the current pandemic. Um, and all of a sudden they needed money to grow. And so that's where we actually were, I felt useful for once <clears throat> um, as lawyers. Um, and then before that, I was also, um, part of the Fordham um, University School of Law. I was part of their entrepreneur law clinic. And during the clinic, we helped um, smaller entrepreneurs, I'd say much smaller than the clients I had at Goodwin, but we would help um, clients that were um, either lower socioeconomic status or were founded by minorities. Um, and we would help them with their, mostly their formation and their um, employment needs. And so I've had a pretty broad range of experiences, I'd say over the past about four years. I think those experiences are super interesting. And uh, I think this is kind of like a unique role because we've spoken 
to entrepreneurs, robotics engineers, et cetera, on the podcast. But I think like the work you do at specifically at like Paul Hastings is pretty unique. Um, so I, in it's also in a more of a niche industry, right? The private equity industry. It's something that people don't have as much knowledge of. So if you could talk a little bit about what what the private equity industry is, um, how it functions, how it gets like entrepreneurs and investors and connects the two. Uh, if you could talk a lot a little bit about that, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, so when people think of private equity, I feel like, you know, you, you hear things in the headlines, right? But no one ever really knows what it is or what it means or why we have it. Um, private equity is just another fancy way of saying funding, right? So like a company wants to go do something and they need money to do that naturally, right? There's very few businesses. I guess that's not as true anymore. I guess you can start an internet business or, you know, um, a podcast or, um, you know, an Etsy shop, I guess you can start those pretty easily. But for most big businesses that want that have a product or want to develop a product that's expensive, let's say a car or a healthcare application or a, you know, an invention or something like that, they need a lot of money to do that. You need to hire people, you need space, you need to um, hire IP attorneys to protect what you design, right? Um, you need to pay the factory for what, you know, that is building what you've designed. And so all those costs, right, are either, you know, typically funded through a loan from a bank, right? Or you can go into the private equity area where you can get money from private investors. What private equity does is it basically um, aggregates money from investors and that investor can be anyone from, you know, a high net worth individual, um, so a rich person for lack of a better term. Um, and go all the way up to, you know, state governments, um, a lot of pension plans, a lot of teachers' pension plans uh, invest in private equity uh, funds. And so it runs the whole gamut of, you know, people, places and um, entities, let's say. Um, and so, you know, they all get together and a fund manager, a sponsor, we call them, will basically go out into the market and say, hey, you know, I have this really good idea. I want to go and fund electric vehicles. I know a lot about electric vehicles. I know a couple of companies that are going to build electric vehicles. I know who to invest in. I know who's going to be the next Tesla. I just, I know it. And so they'll go and they'll, they'll basically tell that spiel to a lot of different people or to pension plans or to the states or to cities even. And people will say, yeah, you know, I like this guy. I believe in his, you know, his vision. He knows what he's doing. I'm going to give him a million dollars. And if a hundred people do that, right, or a hundred entities do that, then what? He has a hundred million dollars in the bank that he can then go and spend on, you know, Tesla's competitor or a battery manufacturer in um, Oklahoma or um, a silicone distributor in California. Um, there's just so many things that go into electric vehicles, right, that this guy knows about. Um, but the average investor or the pension planner or whatnot wouldn't know about that. And so they basically take their money, pool it, give it to somebody who knows what to do with their money. And then that person earns, you know, a certain commission, a little bit of money here and there. Um, but it's really for the benefit of the investors underneath who, you know, have the money, but don't really know what to do with it. So I want to touch on one thing specifically that you talked about. And it was about how people open Etsy shops. They still go out the classic example of the lemonade stand, and that's a business, but uh, more of a, 
personal advice for myself and i would just want to ask you a question so mm-hmm. a little bit uh telling me i want to tell you a little bit more about myself and the experience that i've had with entrepreneurship so in the summer of 2020 i attended this incubator in which i started my own business idea and just to give you a very quick rundown of it it's basically a drone education startup and we see everywhere that people are flying drones people are using them for making youtube videos or just recreationally but there's very few amount of people who actually know how to build a drone how to code a drone and how the drone works how it gets lift how it moves etc so based off of that i identified this like niche market of high schoolers who are very interested in stem who have a passion for building drones and such like that and with the team that i was placed with we started something called comet drones which essentially sells an entry level drone kit which means that it's completely plug and play mean no soldering nothing it will just be plug and play almost like lego pieces but you're given a dismantled drone and along with that you're given a online course that we develop on our own which walks you through how a drone works how to program it how it's wired and everything like that so for a high schooler like me if i wanted to come to you asking for money suppose that i want to hook myself up with a supplier to start building these drone kits how exactly would somebody approach you in the private equity industry asking for money and could you kind of give us an example maybe meeting with somebody if somebody's coming and asking for money yeah absolutely um so you know what typically happens in you know a business right is you have an idea um like this drone business right and and there's multiple levels of funding that you can go through um and so most people start with their own money right and they'll say you know I'm going to you know build my website I'm going to design a prototype and that's going to cost $2000 right so a lot of people will save up $2000 and do that and the next step might be advertising right so you have your prototype um you want to get some you know foot traffic in the door so you say you know I need $20000 to do that right and so that's usually at the friends and family fundraising level that we call it um where you basically go to your parents your friends your colleagues uh acquaintances and say you know hey this is, this is my idea here's a pitch deck here's all the things i've been thinking about i need $20,000 to bring it to the next level and i can give you 15% of the company right and so that's like a pretty low level where you start breaking into the private equity and the venture capital world really is what we're talking about now is more venture capital um especially for startups but in the venture capital world right is where you're starting to say okay i need a million dollars i need 2 million dollars because i need to buy you know a thousand i need to build a thousand units and it's going to cost me 600,000 to build those units plus 100,000 to ship it plus you know 50,000 to hire somebody in marketing who can then market these materials um to potential buyers and so that's really where you start getting into the private equity venture capital world of you know identifying um certain venture capital firms that might invest solely in drone um in drone products or um you know you're you're you said you had an educational piece right so then you might also target venture capital firms that um focus on education right or digital education and so you know you basically look at your product and you say you know how do i break my product down it's a drone it's an electric vehicle as an education um aspect to it um is it targeted to certain types of people right and then you take all those aspects and then you go out and you do your research on which venture capital firms or private equity firms um are 
are investing in those types of areas. Um, you know, like I said, in, in, in your example, though, it, it would most likely be like the venture capital side of things, which is much more, um, you know, it's still part of the private equity world, but it's much smaller. It's more niche. Right. So there are probably like four or five venture capital firms. I don't know their names and I don't know if they actually exist, but there's probably like four or five of them out there that probably invest a bulk of their money in drones, drone racing leagues, you know, stuff like that, um, that, you know, that's their entire investment thesis is that they know drones, they know how to deploy capital to drones. And, you know, say if I want to invest in one of those venture capital firms, I might say, hey, you know, I have $50,000 that I'm not using right now. Um, I think drones are going to be really big in the next five years. And so I find venture capital firm A that, you know, spends 80% of its capital on drones. And I might say, hey, you know, here's here's fifty thousand dollars. I want you to, you know, invest it in your fund, and I want to I want to see what you can make out of it. And so that would be like the step that you'd probably be taking um, towards the venture capital side of things. So I completely agree with you, and this brings me back to the point that when I went to pitch uh, later in the later part of the incubator, I went on to pitch this idea to a group of investors, and they were from the fifteen seventeen fund, and. It was basically a competition among six other teams who also had business ideas. But I think that the reason that we won was because we had a way more developed idea and we got um, a pr like validation from drone experts who are also in the industry. And that allowed us to get $1,000 in uh, seed funding from the venture capital firm, the 1517 fund. So I think that this makes more sense in terms of high schoolers and how they should approach starting a real business. So just for everybody listening, you should look into venture capital rather than private equity, because starting off as a high schooler, you don't want to be looking at too much money rather than you just want to focus on building up your business and your idea. And I think that Ayush is going to ask us the next question now. And, and, and right before Ayusha, you know, starts, do you remember any of the questions that they're asking you? Um, because venture capital firms, when you pitch them, they ask you very, um, very pointed questions about your business model and your idea and your invention. So do you remember, you know, for your audience's benefit, do you remember any of the questions they were asking you or any particular tough ones maybe? Yeah, I remember a really tough one and they straight up just point blank, point blank asked, why are people going to buy this? Why should we give you money for something that you're just a small group of kids who don't know what they're doing and this is just an incubator that you've joined? So they straight up asked us, what will you do with the thousand dollars and what is what are you giving us? What trust should we have in you so that we're able to give you this thousand dollars? And they wanted clear cut answers. They didn't want like long drawn general statements that were like, oh, we're going to invest in marketing. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. We were prepared and we asked and we told them directly. These are the suppliers. We've reached out to them. These are the people who have validated our idea. And we've told them that they've, I can give you one of the quotes from the slide. And what, and just to give you a little bit of background, there is a person who worked for the Department of Defense and his name is Patrick Egan. And exactly what he said was drones are super difficult for teens to understand, which acts as a barrier to get into the growing drone industry. Comet, which was the name of our company, Comet's affordable price point, creation of a course, and unique approach to making drone creation fun and safe sets them up for success. So this is one of the cool questions that they asked us, and we actually pre prepared for this ahead of time. They just, one of the people just asked us, what are you going to do with the money and how can I put my trust in you? Yeah, no, that, that, that's great. And that, that's usually the question that stumps most people, right, is they come and they say, 
oh, I have the next best idea. It's going to be worth a billion dollars. And I think you should give me a billion dollars. And then people say, why? And they go, oh, well, I don't know. Right. And like, it's good when you come prepared for the, you know, the very most basic questions sometimes are usually the ones that trip people up the most. And so I'm glad that you were able to uh, handle that. It sounds like very well, fairly well. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience because as high schoolers, we don't really get the opportunity to work like with a curriculum where we're always being challenged to answer questions that we don't typically get asked. So I think that Ayush is going to talk more on that. Yeah, so switching gears a bit, specifically talking about the high school curriculum, if you look at it, it is very, very career focused. How to make the most money possible um, when you move into the workforce so that way you can, you know, um, raise a family, afford, uh, uh, afford a house, afford basic necessities, etc. However, they don't teach you half of the equation. One half of the equation is making money, which is what school supposedly prepares you for. But the other half is saving money and utilizing the money that you have in a way that allows you to um, save most of it or invest most of it and make the most out of the money that you already have. So where to spend your money, essentially. Um, It's pretty obvious that the high school curriculum neglects financial literacy. So how are you able to overcome that lack of knowledge coming out of high school and make financially smart decisions after you started making money? I think there's a difference between the term financial literacy and financial proficiency. Um, You know, financial literacy is like, do you know how to add and subtract? And do you understand, you know, what a loan is? And do you understand, you know, interest, right? I think those are very, very basic ideas that you know, I guess some schools may not even reach that level, but I feel like a lot of schools now are starting to reach the literacy level. The problem is that what you pointed out are proficiency standards where, you know, do you understand the difference between, you know, a long-term rate and a short-term rate? Do you understand the difference between compounding interest and simple interest? And do you actually understand, you know, the, the, uh, you know, how big of a difference there is between compounding and simple interest there is? Do you, you know, do you understand um, not just how to balance a checkbook, right, but also how to plan in, into the future? Do you understand how to, you know, trade stocks? Do you understand how to trade options? Do you even understand options, right? And 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 that's where I think you know the school system is is, is lacking severely. Um, you know, just like trading. You know, I remember. When I was in college, you know, towards the end, I think, you know, junior or senior year, I finally just decided that I wanted to invest and I wanted to learn how to invest. And so I opened a, you know, a Merrill Edge account through Bank of America because that was the bank I had. And I just put $250 into it and I started playing around and I bought, you know, I bought a couple stocks and I sold them at a loss. And then I bought one stock and I sold it at a gain. And I was like, okay, that this is how that works. And then you know, um, I started doing more research and I started learning that, you know, you don't just pick stocks because they sound cool. You pick stocks because they have a good long-term vision, or you know that something in the short term is going to happen that might, you know, increase the stock's price, right? And so you start learning how to research a little bit better as you learn how to trade. And so I think, you know, for like, you know, the average high schooler, become a little bit more proficient in their finances, I think you should, 
you know, learn how to trade at the very least. And there's a lot of programs out there too that, you know, basically let you operate a, um, a fake account, right? So they'll give you an account with $10,000 of, you know, fake money basically. And you can go out and you can basically trade on the real market with this fake money um, in a simulated area, of course, not on the real market. But um, I think that's a great idea for any student that's just interested in learning on, you know, learning how the financial system works, right? And how, you know, certain things might affect a stock one day, but not another day. And, you know, you start, you know, <clears throat> it's really the research that teaches you a lot more than... I could tell you, you know, oh, you should study this topic and that topic and, you know, you should understand this term and that term. The more you research, the more you learn that you don't know and the more that you eventually learn, right? So like you might invest in a bank, right? Like you might invest in Bank of America, Bank of America stocks, tickers, BAC, right? Um, you know, you might invest in that and you might, you know, read a research report that talks about LIBOR rates. And you might say, okay, well, what's a LIBOR rate? You Google it, you learn that, you know, it's a interest rate set by the London Stock Exchange or London um, banking system. And so, you know, there's one piece of knowledge that you know now that you didn't know, you know, five minutes ago. And then, you know, maybe you go invest in um, Tesla, right? And you'll learn very quickly that there's a lot of research materials on Tesla. And so if you click on, you know, the first link of research under Tesla stock, it might say something, you know, like lithium shortage um, causes, you know, these three other stocks to, um, you know, skyrocket. And you might think to yourself, well, you know, why would a shortage in lithium cause those three stock prices to go up and not down, right? Like, wouldn't that hurt the company? And then you click on that link and you learn that, you know, you learn the concepts of supply and demand um, through uh, an offhanded approach. And so I think those are like the ways that, you know, it's just organic learning, right? Like I learned through trial and error, mostly error um, and, and a lot of trial. Um, and I think anyone can learn that way. And I mean, there's definitely, you know, there's there's courses on Coursera or other free resources. And I'm sure your school has access to some too that you know, can teach you about the stock market um, in a very, um, you know, metered way, or they can teach you about, um, you know, loans and stuff. Um, but I think the best way is just like, you know, to go down the rabbit hole of like Googling stuff. It's kind of like a Reddit hole, right? Like you start on one page on Reddit and you end like 50 pages later, do the same thing with your stock research, you know, learn like 50 things along the way. And, and the last thing I'll say is I think, you know, understanding loans is super important for students to to comprehend in high school because you know regardless of socioeconomic status most students do end up with student loans i had student loans uh, even though i came from a fairly you know comfortable background um and i didn't have any idea what i was getting myself into and i'm i, I literally just like i'd say two years ago finally understood like i finally you know spread everything out on my desk and I said, this is what I owe. This is the rate I owe it at. This is how long it's going to take. Right. But like, I should have done all of that beforehand and it, it wouldn't have changed any of my decisions, right. To go to NYU or to go to Fordham law after that. But it would have been better to know beforehand than it would be to figure it out afterhand where, you know, all of a sudden you look at your bills and you go, holy crap, like that's a lot of money that I owe. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of things that you guys need to be aware of that they just don't teach you, right? Like 
I'll tell you the biggest one, right? So like when you take out a loan, there's something sometimes called an origination fee. An origination fee is basically if the bank gives you a $100,000 loan, they might ask for a 2% origination fee, which is basically a fee to give you that $100,000 to originate it. And so what that'll do is if it's a 2% origination fee, they'll take $2,000 right out of your $100,000 um, check. And so instead of getting a $100,000 check, you get a $98,000 check, but you still owe them for the full 100,000. So right off the bat, you've lost $2,000, you owe $100,000 still, and you only got $98,000 in. This happens with student loans, all student loans, I think except for like Stafford, there's like some subsidized loan that doesn't have an origination fee, but all of them have origination fees that range from like 1% to 4%. And if you think about it, like even the 1% on, you know, what, $250,000 for undergraduate loans is a lot of money. And if you look at the 4% range, it's a ton of money. And so just understanding those like very basic concepts, I think, you know, it's super important for you guys just to like, you know, I know it's not like the most exciting information, but it matters and you'll kick yourself later if you didn't spend 10 minutes researching what an origination fee is or researching what the interest rate was, you know, this year versus next year or whether, you know, your loan is going to be a floating rate versus a fixed rate, right? Like floating rates um, adjust with inflation so they can get very, very expensive, whereas a fixed rate, you know, right now is great because you know interest is low but like 10 years ago when interest was like eight percent it wasn't good and so um i would just say you know like take some time and figure that stuff out or you know ask your guidance counselors um or other college advisors they know all this information they're just not used to students asking them about it right and if you take the five minutes to ask them about it they might actually educate you on it to hear more about our Curry's thoughts on personal finance and private equity, make sure to watch next week's episode, which is part two of our conversation, where we continue to talk about these topics more in depth and also how to get investors for your own startup. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of High School Not So Much Musical. And a big thank you to Mr. Arkari once again. That's our show for today. Now roll the credits. High School Not So Much A Musical is hosted by Ayush Agarwal and Nitin Jaladanki. Narration by Samhit Padala. Music from Louis Luang Relaxation Cafe, Tune Pocket, and Infraction. If you like this show, please recommend it to your friends and family. Thank you for listening and see you next time.